Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Andy Hom, who is author of International Relations and the Problem of Time. This book was published in 2020 by Oxford University Press and takes us through the question of time, which is not a small question, um, and how international relations in particular should be paying a lot of attention to questions of time and temporality. But I'm going to let Andy talk to us a little bit about that. First, I'd like to welcome Andy Hom to the podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this really interesting project. Hi, Andy. Hi, Lily. Thanks very much for having me on. Sure. Tell us a little about yourself and and how you came to the question of time and international relations. Um, So I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Edinburgh in the Department of Politics and International Relations. Um, And before that, I worked around Scotland at various universities um, after completing my PhD at the University of Aberystwyth. Uh, I came to this topic, I guess I need to go a bit further back to talk about how I came to this topic. Um, The short story is that it's sort of Brent Steele's fault. He was my master's advisor at the University of Kansas even further back when I was in the process of switching careers or switching from a failed career into graduate school. uh, And I told him I wanted to work on either sovereignty or time. And he uh, very wisely said, there's a lot of work on sovereignty, but not a lot of work on time. So why don't you think about the second one and come back and tell me what you have have to say. Um, And then I read Rob Walker's 1993 book, Inside Outside, which is, I think a lot of people have found it quite provocative. And I certainly did as well. And I I guess in some ways, it's also his fault, although I don't know that he knows that. Uh, but I've been sort of just chewing on this idea ever since. Uh, once you start looking for time, or maybe I should say time is its sort of there, but it's hiding in plain sight. And so it's very easy to do IR or to think about politics without thinking explicitly about time. But as I've discovered, once you start looking for it, you know, it's everywhere. But the ways in which we use it are tend to change quite a bit. So they have some important commonalities, which I tried to sort of foreground in the book so that it was it would hang together and be cohesive. But there's also a lot of variety in the ways that political scientists or IR scholars think about and depend on and end up using time in their work. And it turns out there's also a, an even probably wider variety of the ways that time impacts actual international politics uh, out there in the world, so to speak. And And one of the points that you make throughout the book, but certainly in framing the the thesis, is that this is particularly important and particularly understudied, it seems, um, in international relations. Um, Can you talk a little bit about specifically with regard to international relations as opposed to, say, political science broadly? Sure. So, I mean, I I agree with you, Lily. There's, There's been a lot of work probably stretching a bit further back, especially in political theory, 
on time. Uh, there's also, you know, a lot of the things that make their way into IR, especially sort of American Academy IR tend to come in through political science. So for instance, the there's a chapter in the book on historical institutions, and it seems to my you know, um, <clears throat> non-expert reading of, of disciplinary history that we, we see historical institutions a little bit earlier in political science than, than in IR. It's a bit strange because, again, once you start looking at IR directly, there's just a lot of time or temporal concerns going on. Um, I mean, just, just a few that, you know, that I mentioned early on in the book. I mean, when we talk about whether it's foreign policy or national security or brand strategy and whether the election of a new leader signals continuity or change in those uh, those elements, you know, that's a temporal question, continuity versus change. We also see a lot of talk about linear versus cyclical conceptions of history. So is history, you know, kind of steady onwards and upwards progress, or is it more of a recurrent, say, balance of power politics or security dilemmas if you're working within structural realism? Um, you know, the... the the way that the discipline of IR has evolved as well, and it may be more the way it understands itself to have evolved than, than the full story of the, of the field and then the discipline's history. But the, the standard story about the evolution of international relations, you know, includes key moments like the sort of shocking slaughter of the Great War or World War I, the thermonuclear revolution, then 50 years or so where it's just stability and structure or, or so we hear then the end of the Cold War, which surprised everyone, then 9-11, then laterally the global financial crisis in the Arab Spring. So there's this kind of structure, I think, that's, that's highly temporalized in the discipline's self-understanding, which is that we have models and we're working on those models and all of a sudden a kind of an exogenous or external shock in the world of international politics upends everything we thought we knew. And then there's a fair amount of sort of teeth gnashing or self-reflection uh, or blame in some of these episodes, and then the discipline, to some extent, reinvents itself and tries to move forward in light of these new events. So that kind of, you know, stability or continuity crisis and change, that's almost impossible to understand without time and temporality. So these are some of the things that I, you know, I think are kind of, again, hiding in plain sight in the discipline. And, and that's one of the things that I found really fascinating is the way that you sort of say, hey, think about this. <laughs> You've never thought about this, but if you think about it, it's everywhere. Um, and I know that Elizabeth Cohn, who's another scholar of sort of political time, said sort of the same thing in her book, um, that once you start to see it and think about it, that it is, in fact, structurally everywhere. And so I wanted to ask you, what is it that we mean by this idea of time, which itself is an abstraction, um, because you also distinguish time from timing um, and a theory, a basic theory of timing. So can you give us a broader discussion of these distinctions and what we're talking about? So the question of what do we mean by time is, <laughs> you, know, um, you can have centuries of uh, philosophy on this and <clears throat> decades of social theory uh, and it's, you know, it's a question with no end in some ways. Um, it means something different to everyone. We all tend to share a number of ideas about what time is. And so I think the book, the book tries to not skirt that question, but to kind of dissolve the question a little bit. So a lot of those 
again, the centuries of philosophy and decades of social theory, they've been trying for the most part to identify, you know, a sort of a stable kernel or, or a universal truth or a metaphysical condition that makes time real, right? And often then they distinguish between that kind of absolute or metaphysical or natural time and then all of the hurly-burly experiences of time that subjective, you know, uh, unreliable, internally changing humans tend to have. And so there's already a kind of a value hierarchy imposed in the way we think about time, which is that there's something out there that's real time and that doesn't change. And then everything that you and I think about with our time perception, I mean, you know, the sort of lockdown and the COVID, the year of COVID, uh, what we're hearing about a lot is, is that none of us remember what month it is, much less what day, and that time is either passing very slowly or very quickly. And those tend to all get lumped into the psychological perception of time as something less real than this supposedly freestanding um, natural fact. And the book's argument is there is no natural fact. It's all just built up from various social experiences of time. But the importance of timing, uh, which I'll try to define or kind of elaborate a little bit more shortly, but the importance of timing is uh, the argument of timing is that those social experiences of time are things that we've gone out of our way to create. And we've often gone, gone out of our way to create or construct various experiences or symbols of time for political purposes. And so then what we come to understand as real in 2020 is usually resting on decades, if not centuries, of widely shared, increasingly global social practices of timing. Um, and again, by timing, I I mean, much more than coincidence or just when something happens, right? So we often will kind of idiomatically say, oh, this is really good or really bad timing, right? If you run into your friend on the street right before you're about to, you know, go for a drink, that's great timing. Come with us. Um, or if, you know, if, <clears throat> if the letter arrives the day after you, you needed to submit it as evidence, of, you know, for something, uh, then it's bad timing. Timing in the book is based more on Norbert Elias's very brief um, social, I guess, sociological or social theoretical essay on time. And it's the idea that timing is a, a much more kind of comprehensive or synthetic social activity where we are trying to stitch together various processes and changes and actors, <clears throat> excuse me, and relations. We're trying to stitch together all these dynamic elements that matter. And we're trying to make them sort of hang together and interact in ways so that they unfold new processes that wouldn't otherwise be there. And those processes make <clears throat> social life more intelligible. Ideally, they make it more meaningful. And even more ideally, they, they sort of become useful processes that we can help to organize, again, our lives together, or perhaps to organize, if you look further back in history, um, the rotation of crops, so the planting of crops against the seasonal cycles. So these, there are all these sorts of kind of huge, uh, complex, and widely shared activities that count as timing. And we just have kind of forgotten that because we tend to talk much more about time than timing. And, and part of what you're talking about here is that there's, there's really this question also of narrative. Um, and I was recently talking with Roger Smith about his new book, which also is kind of this question of how do we apply a narrative to understand the world around us? And part of what you're talking about is that there's a narrative of timing that I think is really interesting and helps human brains, um, you know, sort of compartmentalize and make sense of things. 
Can you explain a little bit about this idea of the narrative? Yes. So I, I think narrative theorists uh, would probably take issue with this, but to me, narrative is almost a subset or a, a really important type of, of timing. So if if timing activities, if, if some, for something to count as a timing activity, it just needs to stitch together social relations or processes in a new way and help them unfold towards a different outcome. Narrative would be one key way that we do that. But we all, you know, we might also do things that are entirely technical, like inventing and developing and perfecting a mechanical clock. <clears throat> but narratives, I mean, one thing that I think narrative theorists tend to agree on is that not unlike time, once you start looking for the basic features of narratives, um, you know, protagonists and antagonists, plot twists, um, you know, chronological endings that also kind of neatly tie up all of the meaning of the story. Once you start to look for those elements, you also start to see narratives everywhere in social life. So much more than the kind of the classic, at least in political science, narrative versus theory divide, it might actually be more like theories or a type of narrative and the ways in which we engage you know, politics and the ways we try to understand them in both political science and international relations are highly narrativized. I mean, what, what theory doesn't, you know, posit some sort of protagonist or antagonist doesn't start somewhere and end somewhere, doesn't choose its ending in a way that is really useful for making kind of tying up all of the, <clears throat> the elements that it's been working with, you know, and it tends to follow something like a plot arc, although it may not be as exciting as a tragic plot arc from Greek drama, um, you know, it does tend to kind of follow twists and turns that it makes intelligible as it leads toward that conclusion. And and in this in this context, you talk about the fact that for IR in particular, that the there's a role for narrative timing um, that connects to these theories um, as well, and also because there are these sort of broad discussions of cyclical or linear sort of activities and theories that this is really where time and timing come in to IR in a, in a particular way. Can you talk a little bit about that? So yes, <laughs> I hope I can um, let me organize my thoughts a, a bit. Um, you know, timing the way the book introduces timing is is quite general or basic. And so then it needs, the argument I think of the discussion needs to begin focusing in a little bit more on the kind of <clears throat> raw material that we tend to think about international relations scholars working with. And that's either theories or researches, you know, into international politics. And so narrative theory helps us get there again, because if we understand these basic elements of narrative, than almost anything that we write about international politics, even the most formal game theoretical model tends to have some exposition ahead or behind it that adds qualitative content. Uh, and even the model itself, right? I mean, we have inputs and we have perhaps, let's say, you know, decision nodes um, and then outputs. So there is a kind of a, a narrative temporality to that, right? There's a beginning and an end and the end is important. Um, I realize that's a, a really basic conceptual narrative, but I'm trying to, in the first part of the book, I'm trying to work in the most basic sense uh, or with, with the most basic elements so that we can have a kind of a, <clears throat> a set of tools for the second part of the book where I look at specific parts of international relations scholarship um, by using a tool that can kind of be adapted 
and you know fit for purpose in each different chapter. Um, you know, you mentioned linear and cyclical again, and we I've mentioned continuity and change. If, if we look at international relations again, without those two um, binaries or tensions or questions about the ways in which international politics is unfolding, again, without notions about crisis and shocks and adaptation, um, all of which again we can kind of clearly see playing a narrative role in in the stories we construct about politics and also the stories the field tells about itself uh, as a field that tends to adapt to surprising changes. Um, If we take those out, which I understand to be narrative timing elements, it's really hard to imagine what IRI would look like without them. Um, I mean, we might talk about organizing principles like anarchy perhaps, but then it turns out that anarchy gets very frequently conflated with chaos. This is a there was an interesting article by Jack Donnelly, I think, on this a few years back in international theory, showing how often we move from kind of anarchy as the formal absence of a sovereign or a hegemonic power and into the idea of anarchy as kind of easily leading to chaos and disorder. Well, chaos and disorder are two of the longest running uh, associates, if you will, of the problem of time, in, at least in, West, in the Western uh, philosophical tradition. So again, even when we start looking at things that may not be clearly kind of dynamic narrative elements or elements that change over time, it turns out that they have temporal assumptions built into them. And and you in the in the beginning of the book, you talk a bit about um, the Western conception of time, and I'm taking you back a little bit. I'm sorry about that, but I wanted you to talk a little bit about. This, this sort of question of how time is, or the absence of time is considered to some degree to be chaotic, um, and that the presence of time is a form of ordering, and that we've seen this sort of organizing over centuries in the West um, in terms of our understanding of our lives, which goes to this question of narrative as well. Um, but can you talk just a little tiny bit about why the absence of time may be this sort of question of chaos and disruption. And we've become so used to the sort of structure and organizing sort of understanding of time in our lives. The, the Western conception of time that we have now, I think if we, if we start looking at it more closely, it looks, it threatens to fall apart. It seems to have an internal contradiction that just can't hold, which is that, temporal symbols or time reckoning devices like standardized clock, right? Or the Gregorian calendar or the idea of time as progress. These are, these are tend to sit side by side with much older ideas about time as the bringer of dissolution and decay and chaos. Um, And so, you know, the internal contradiction there is how can you have this one very short word uh, or concept that's supposed to, you know, throw its arms around both, you know, the bringer of chaos on the one hand and, the kind of the arch symbol of eternal order, like the clock on the other. Uh, the way that, that I'm kind of arguing that we should resolve that, again, is, is to understand the, the more kind of stable and orderly versions of time as solutions to this older tradition. So the, the introduction to the book begins a little bit further back than a lot of IR books begin, which is in sort of pre-classical, uh, the pre-classical Middle East or, or, or Near East, uh, looking very briefly um, 
at the idea that there are in, in these kind of ancient cosmologies, there are these ancient time gods and the time gods are reliably the antagonists of the gods who sit in heaven or who, the gods who reside in eternity. And these time gods, one of which is actually called time, the destroyer. So that's a, a sort of very nice synopsis. Um, they're given dominion over earth and they become one of the first explanations for why so many human projects tend to fall apart, right? Or are so hard to kind of stitch together and maintain. Um, that makes its way into classical Greek philosophy and from there into sort of Roman and Christian philosophy and theology. And of course, then you get the kind of the Western tradition is off and running. And it's really, you know, it's baked deeply into the, the, to the pie by that point, that things that are temporal and for anyone who has uh, kind of experience in religious education or in the church, you know, things that are temporal are opposed to things that are eternal. Um, but it's not just that we die whereas God and eternity remain or, or last, but it, you know, temporal also means sinful, right? Or kind of fallen. So there, there's the, that ancient kind of dichotomy, just doing a lot of work. Um, and then Western philosophy, which then generates political philosophy and eventually political theory, you know, that orientation where we need to find stable elements that will solve the natural tendency of things toward disorder and chaos uh, because we live in a temporal realm rather than an eternal realm, that inflects so you know I, I don't want to say everything in Western political thought, but it's certainly the dominant tradition. Uh, this is the kind of thing that uh, John Pocock and John Gunnell, uh, John Gunnell, pardon me, uh, have highlighted uh, along with Sheldon Wolin and and um, more laterally, you know Elizabeth Cohen, who you mentioned, um, and several other sort of contemporary political theorists. And, and you sort of use this, this, um, we, we take for granted, shall we say, understanding of time, and then you do unpack it in terms of understanding both time and the basic theory of timing. Um, and you structure your book in two sections. Um, and the first section, as you say, is kind of laying out the basis of kind of understanding IR, how it works. And the second section is more particular with regard to exact theories within IR. Can you talk about why you structured it this way in particular and what it opened up for you in terms of the research itself? I ask myself that a lot. <laughs> drafting and redrafting and revising stages, Lily. So it's a good question. I'm not sure I've ever adequately answered it to myself, but the, the reason that it's structured the way it is for, I think for the readership is, uh, is twofold. One is that there's a, there had, by the time when I started working on the book, uh, you know, it was a PhD uh, project and it was 2009 and it was still a kind of a, you had to, you had to do a bit of salesmanship to get people to think about or, or listen about time and international politics um, due to the kind of vagaries of uh, post PhD job hunting and, um, all those other dynamics that were at play, there was a bit of a delay. And by the time I was pitching it as a book, it was no longer difficult to, to get people to listen about time. Um, there had been a kind of a swell of work, really fascinating, excellent work on a variety of international political elements of, about time. Um, Millennium, the journal uh, that's run at the LSE, had done a, an entire annual conference on the politics of time. And so at that point then, what I felt 
was still missing in, in the IR research on time was an effort to spell out a distinctively international social theoretical kind of foundation for thinking about time. We'd, we'd borrowed a lot and, and done so very well from other theories. And, and I borrow from Elias, so there's you know, nothing's created out of nothing. Um, but, it, you know, I wanted to kind of take a little bit longer to develop a theory that was kind of international political through and through but could also then be used to do things beyond what the book itself does. So as you mentioned, the second part of the book is looking resolutely uh, inward, so to speak, at international relations scholars and their practices and the works that they produce. But I wanted the first part to reflect, I think, a, a bigger gamble or a bigger wager of timing theory, which is that you can use timing theory to unpack to identify and unpack and analyze almost any time or temporal symbol that we find out in the world, whether that be the world of the academy or the world of, you know, political practice or social life. And so I wanted to kind of highlight that, set them apart. So part one, you know, I think probably has wider um, or more general applicability beyond the, the world of IR theory. And part two, again, is trying to cash out those insights specifically inside of IR. And, and so in that section of the book, and you've got, you've got um, a nice group of chapters here, you go through different kinds of approaches and understandings um, that you sort of outline how time and timing theory has operated. Can you talk a little bit about, I, I mean, again, I don't, you know, nobody has their favorite child, but um, which, which might be the most interesting to you as you are writing the work itself um, in terms of seeing and understanding the application of the timing theory within these particular IR zones? I would never admit to having a favorite child, uh, having two of my own. So if I can... If I can see. If I can swerve that question just slightly, Lily, if I could say something sure. I particularly appreciate about each child, <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe that would be better. Uh, so the second part of the book goes through disciplinary history, methodologies, uh, quantitative IR, historical institutionalism, and critical IR. So one thing to say is I was trying to kind of cast a wide net there. It certainly is not exhaustive of all the places you can find scholarship on time or, or temporal scholarship on international relations, but I was trying to kind of, you know, not just resolutely stay in one lane. Um, I mean, disciplinary history, I think the thing that I found fascinating as I was going through these kind of classic stories about IR theories confronting shocking events and then trying to adapt was that it was the very kind of basic structure that narrative theorists say that narrative helps us grapple with when we confront temporal chaos. We construct new narratives that restore the kind of uh, inhabitable time of life. So time that seems like a manageable realm in which we can move and act. Uh, this is exactly what we see, uh, you know, IR scholars doing after the Great War, after the thermonuclear revolution and the end of the Cold War, and then laterally 9-11. Um, in, met sorry, in methodology or the methodological chapter, uh, I wasn't looking at specific methods or techniques so much as looking at the uh, what other scholars have called the hookup between our knowledge and the world. So what do we think the world is made of and, and what does that imply about how we can come to know things about the world? And there it was quite striking to discover that, you know, King, Cohen, and Verba's 
methodology book is probably, uh, you know, I haven't surveyed graduate programs, but still tends to be the, seems to be the dominant work on methodology, especially in mainstream political science. And it's got, uh, and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, it's more a, a remark of admiration. It's got, the whole thing hangs on a certain element of science fiction and time travel, um, which is an interesting, I think, tension or an interesting twist um, on the way that the book understands itself or the way that the methodology presents reliable social science. Um, but what they're often saying is, you know, in social life, unlike in the lab, we can't go back in time, right? So in the lab, if you're trying to understand gravity, you just pick the ball up off the floor and you roll it off the table over and over again, right? So you can essentially restart sort of the time of this experiment over and over until you understand what's happening. But we can't do that in social life. And so what they often, the solution they propose for causal inference is to imagine that, you know, there's one passage where they say, imagine that we put a person in prison for 20 years and then we find out whether he's radicalized and then we go back in time and put the same person in university and let him go on to have a career. And then, then we can try to figure out whether he is also, you know, also becomes radicalized or not. So, you know, this is the, then the question for the rest of that discussion for them is how can we operationalize that sort of imaginary experimental setup? Because we can't do it in real life. It's unethical to send people to prison just to see what happens to them. Um, so how do we operationalize that in our social scientific research designs? And so for me, you know, this was a fascinating kind of aha moment, which was it's the science fiction of time travel that makes neo-positivist or mainstream kind of you know, unity of science, causal inference possible in social life. Um, so, you know, that again is that's something that I sort of found particularly interesting in researching and writing that chapter. Um, moving on to sort of the quantitative and the other chapters, you know, one thing is that the sort of we pay a lot of attention. So I kind of straddled, this is a bit of backstory. I straddled the sort of divide between UK and US training and that I had a lot of graduate training um, in the political science program at Kansas uh, where I did my master's and then a very different type of graduate training at Aberystwyth. Um, but one thing that, you know, just seemed to be common across them is that there's, there is training in statistics and now how much you get depends a lot on where you go to graduate school. There's not a lot of history of statistics. And once we start looking at the history of statistics, uh, for me, this was kind of Ian Hacking's Taming of Chance and several other more recent works. There's a lot of narrative sort of almost poetic attempts to devise concepts that help us resolve or or kind of grapple with the idea that, you know, this is in the 17th, 18th, 19th century, that God is dead or there's you can't rely on, on God or eternity to sort of explain why things happen. So we need the law of large numbers and we need the kind of the normal distribution to reassure us that although this thing, this one thing we're looking at might be very random over time, enough of these similar things will happen that it will all even out. So it was again, this, this kind of, um, for me, an aha moment that, that there is a, a kind of a deep narrative temporality to even something as formal and as it's often called timeless, right? The linear regression model is seen to be the kind of the, the timeless workhorse of sort of frequentist statistics. Uh, but if we start kind of taking it apart, there's a really uh, creative narrative temporality flowing through it. 
Um, okay, I'll try to be a bit quicker on the last the last oh, few okay. chapters. Um, historical institutions, you know, this is a much more recent research area in IR and one that excites me because it um, it is coming out of a, a perhaps a more mainstream political science tradition, but looking directly at time. Uh, but one of the things that was interesting, again, in, in reading more closely in that subfield was that there's still that problem problem of time tradition, as I call it in the book, lurking, you know, just behind all the, the kind of main action. Um, you know, a lot of historical institutionalists are trying to explain why institutions endure well past their kind of best by date or well past the point where their original relevance or the kind of the mission for which they emerged has been completed. So why are institutions sticky? But also, why don't they adapt as quickly as, you know, as kind of rationalist models of institutional design would expect them to adapt? And the answer reliably is that temporal dynamics get in the way. And that's really interesting on, on its own terms, right? That the sort of passage of time or path dependence, um, you know, or, or the kind of various dynamics that drive stickiness, that these things tend to kind of confound our, our more rationalist expectations about institutions. But again, it's also, I think one of the reasons it's probably resonated is it's still partaking of that ancient tradition where if we simply say that time passes, it's not at all provocative to then say, and then things fall apart, right? Or time passes and our best hopes are confounded. So there's this kind of interesting, dramatic element to the way historical institutionalism has come into IR that I think can be somewhat resolved or again dissolved if we understand and kind of pull out that problem of time tradition. And so then I end up making an argument about how we might move from historical institutions where time is the reason that they tend to underperform our highest expectations. We can move towards more dedicatedly temporal institutions where we just take that stickiness and that kind of slowness to adapt um, and the kind of what we often think of as the pathologies of institutions and say, that's just the way that institutional life is. And we don't need to evaluate it either implicitly or explicitly against this kind of perfect, seamless, adaptive baseline. And then finally, the critical chapter is uh, the one where I, I guess I, in some ways, worked to lose all my friends. And Averest with is a fairly critically inclined uh, graduate program or department. Um, and that, you know, that is the kind of the field or the subfield that I identify mostly as, is as a kind of a lowercase c critical IR scholar. Um, and critical scholars have been, you know, at the forefront uh, or the vanguard of driving our interest in time and using uh, a focus on time and international politics to expand the field's imagination about what counts as international politics and what actually goes into the kind of the ways that international politics unfolds. So, you know, I think that we wouldn't be anywhere near where we are now in discussing time in, in IR without critical IR. Uh, but there were a few things, you know, that just were nagging at me about, about that subfield and perhaps none more than the kind of the discourse of rupture. Um, this is often identified with post-structuralist IR, uh, but that chapter, you know, tackles several different elements or several different ways in which critical scholars have thought about time and proposed it as an, alter an alternative way to theorize international relations uh, and tries to show that, you know, either the problem of time is still lurking once again, right? So this, this deeply embedded kind of habit of thought is much harder to, to get rid of, right? Or to undo than we might think. Or in the case of rupture, that there's actually 
you know, that this is also its own disciplinary timing project, as much as I think theorists of rupture might wish to not, you know, to think differently. Um, but the interest in the ways that ruptures undo hegemonic politics uh, is almost always in hopes of a politics otherwise, which is Michael Shapiro's way of putting it, um, you know, or a less hegemonic, less violent political possibilities is what we we in critical IR tend to think that ruptures will open onto. But there's a lack of uh, elaboration about how we might actually get there. And there are strong post-structuralist reasons for, for not prescribing um, you know, new programs of action. Uh, but the chapter kind of ends with a sustained critique of that uh, for while you know, it may violate certain post-structuralist um, principles to prescribe a new program of action, if we simply just say, we just hope that what happens after a rupture is better, you know, we're back to a kind of a classical realist problem, which is we need to act, you know, we need to have resources for action. Uh, if we leave it open to chance or open to all processes, then, you know, somebody else's will to power will exert itself and we may not like where we end up. Um, so again, it's trying to, to show that in each of these different chapters in each of these very, very different modes of doing IR or, or areas of IR research, there are efforts to time politics in certain ways uh, that sort of reflect or comport with the scholar's methodological and often political uh, commitments. Um, almost no one is trying to theorize ways in which to make nuclear war happen, for instance. We're all trying to theorize ways to prevent apocalypse. And uh, but the ways in which we try to weave those commitments, again, methodological and political and theoretical, the way we weave those commitments into the arguments about what's actually happening in international politics or how we should study it has a really interesting kind of mimetic effect where we purport to be describing or unpacking the world, but we're actually also in part changing the world as we do it. And that's why it's, you know, there's a kind of a continuum between scholarship as a form of timing and the kind of timing that we might actually see out in the world of politics. And that's one of the things that I found really interesting about your research is that you are going in both directions in terms of understanding not only the sort of theory and, and IR and political theory obviously are built on this basis, but also what it is that we're thinking about in the world as events transpire um, and how we sort of narrate them to ourselves to make sense out of them in terms of the theory. And I found that as, as somebody who has studied political theory to be really fascinating and useful. Um, and so I wanted to ask you a bit about, you know, once you get to an understanding of time, which is complicated and possibly disruptive to one's reality, um, what do you look at next? What What's your next project? Um, boy, my next project. Um, I guess my next project is to, is to take the, um, the two-part organization of the book seriously and to and stop thinking about other IR scholars for a little bit and think a little bit more about international politics. Um, and so maybe... You know, to go back to your earlier question, why has the book organized this way? I think in some ways it's also a spur to myself, right, to really take uh, take seriously the wider applicability of timing theory and, and actually um, look at some timing in practice, again, out in the world of politics. Um, 
I mean, some of this has fallen into my lap since since the book was at least in production. Um, so it used to be just like it was a little bit hard to get people to to think about time or listen to me talk about time in, in IR and political science. It was also you had to do a little bit of hermeneutic work on your own to to pull out the temporality of politics in the past. Um, in the last two or four years, literally, that has changed completely, which is that's a wonderful. That's a wonderful thing, but it's a little bit like drinking from the fire hose, um, <laughs> you know. But you've you've got um, everyone talking about crisis and the end times because of the election of Donald Trump. Um, but even here in the UK, you know, the Brexit debates, the way they've unfolded since the resolution, has just been shot through with time with talk about time. I mean, there's. I said that IR is unimaginable without time. You couldn't you couldn't have the Brexit debate as we know it without references to you know the ticking clock or running out the clock, without references to the cliff edge, which is the deadline and what happens after the deadline is passed if we don't have a deal. Uh, Brexit has even created new time words like sequenceology, neverendums, which is a uh, I guess that's a. Um, neologism, I think, for never and referendums, so neverendums and uh, Brexternity. So you've got various actors on either side of the parliamentary aisle, so to speak, flinging these new time words as accusations against each other. So, so you know, I guess politics did some of the work for me in that this stuff was unavoidable. Um, and of course, COVID has not only rearranged our relationship at time, but there's talk about how many waves we're going to face and how long we'll be in lockdown. So this is duration and deadlines and processes. I've been trying to sort of show how those, you know, exemplify political timing at work. And I've done some uh, really enjoyable work collaborating with Ryan Beasley at St. Andrews on this. Uh, Ryan Beasley is a uh, foreign policy expert and I am not. So we, he brings the foreign policy and I brought the timing and, you know, we managed to, I think, at least illustrate how important time is to Brexit, and we're hoping to do so with COVID. Um, how long that stuff goes probably depends on funding, and and you know, I mean, hopefully the pandemic itself won't last much longer. Um, beyond that, uh, I wanted to look at um, a peculiar or a particularly American form of time. Something that again is is. I think uniquely important and kind of durable in the American experience, which is uh, wartime. And this is building on, uh, it's inspired by Mary Dudziak's book, which is largely kind of a, a legal analysis of the politics of, you know, when wars end and, and how long they can last. Um, I was, you know, I'm hoping to kind of take the timing theory I've developed in the, in, in this book and start looking at elements, you know, how do American politicians and publics, uh, construct the idea of wartime and how does it become or why does it become so central to the way the U.S. organizes not only its foreign relations but also its domestic politics. Um, this, is, of course, is informed by um, going to university and especially graduate school during the forever war on terror. Um, but, you know, the, the Which is another thing, great title. The, the forever war on terror? yeah. I, I'm still thinking about the title for the project, so I, I'm <laughs> taking all candidates at this point. Um, but, you know, the, I guess the, the wager of timing theory is that anywhere we find a kind of a durable, meaningful reference to time exerting social or political impact, we can, if we look closely and use the tools that I, I've developed in the book, 
we can find an underlying kind of timing apparatus. And the apparatus doesn't have to be technical and scientific. It could be, you know, again, largely narrative and social. And I think, you know, I'm hoping that if we start looking at, if I look at wartime more closely, um, you know, that I'll be able to, to unpack that in the same way. I think it's a fascinating project. And particularly when you think about the American system, which has this regular regularization of elections, which then give us a, a time structure um, of administrations that's somewhat distinct from parliamentary systems um, where the election is not necessarily as as sort of embedded in our structure of politics. Um, I Well, I look forward to reading that book and having you talk about it on the New Books Network with me when it's finished. Years away, Lily, at this point. Uh, but I mean, you, you know, you're absolutely right about elections. I mean, it's, it's so much more, I think, explicitly syncopated in the U.S., uh, than in parliamentary systems like the UK. So this is something I didn't really appreciate till, till moving over here. Uh, but the ways in which a, a sort of a hard four-year election time schedule or timetable exerts effects on American politics. Uh, but then again, also the ways in which various politicians have found ways around that for the sake of making war, uh, whether it's the, you know, the authorization for the use of military force or the ways in which the wider war and terror gets constructed as requiring a, a kind of a permanent, you know, wartime footing, uh, which of course builds on the Cold War's largely permanent wartime footing, or at least preparedness, uh, permanent wartime preparedness. You know, this is, I think, a fascinating. In, in some ways, it's like a clash of times or timing regimes moving under the surface of American politics. So yeah, hope- that that is am- amazing. In just starting to talk about it and the way that you are conceptualizing it, it really is very fascinating, given also how Americans think about, in narrative context, the impact of the wars, the Great War, um, World War II, and so forth, and where they where they show up in terms of our understanding of ourselves as a people and our heroic intentions. Heroic so, and just, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Andy, for joining me today to talk about international relations and the problem of time. This book was published in 2020 by Oxford University Press. I assume it is available at Oxford University Press's website. Do you have a brick and mortar store that has an online option that you would like to give a shout out to? Um, it's available on bookshop.org, which is the, the U.S. and now the U.K. kind of alternative uh, to large online retailers. So I sadly have been away from the U.S. so long, I'm not aware of which brick and mortar, brick and mortar booksellers have survived. Uh, but bookshop.org will donate some of the proceeds to local shops. Great. Um, thank you, Andy Hom, for joining me today to talk about time and IR. Thanks very much for having me. It was it was a pleasure.